0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of What the F*** is Biodiversity? My name is Jamie, and I work for the NGO, the National Environmental Treasure. We're spreading the word about the impact of biodiversity loss and how we can all protect our planet. Throughout our podcast series, we will explore the amazing world of biodiversity, why it's so vital for humans, what is causing its decline, and of course, tangible solutions for its conservation. Today's guest is Brittany Golly an Ottawa-based photographer and educator who is passionate about nature and conservation. She is the founder of A Night for Conservation, which is an event focused on connecting people and planet. She's also a founding member of Women for Nature with Nature Canada and is a former high school history teacher. She even played for the Canadian Women's Hockey League. In between an active photography business and trying to change the world, she somehow finds time to host a weekly podcast called Naturally Curious, where she chats with a variety of guests about following their curiosity, finding direction, and cultivating their own story. Over the next half hour, Anne and Brittany talk all about A Night for Conservation, how to guide and empower people through experiential learning, and how to help them form a deeper connection with nature. They also touch on sustainable fashion, provide some interesting insight on the charitable sector in Canada, and talk about what barriers people face when entering environmental activism and conservation. Now, without further ado, here are Anne and Brittany.
1: Hi, Brittany. I'm delighted to be talking to you today. It's going to be a really hot day in Ottawa where we're both located right now. I first met you through Women for Nature, of which we are both founding members associated with Nature Canada. And you invited me to speak on a panel, a night for conservation. Do you want to describe that event that you plan and lead?
2: Certainly, and thanks so much for having me, Anne. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation today. So, A Night for Conservation is essentially an event that raises funds and awareness for three or four different organizations, including Nature Canada. And all of these organizations do important work for conservation, whether it's locally, nationally, or internationally. And I think in terms of conservation, we do need to think bigger than our immediate surroundings for that effective and lasting change. So that's kind of why we've incorporated that local, national, and international model. We're really about creating opportunities for educating and empowering people in our community and protecting threatened species in the places that we all need to survive. So it's really just a big kind of cultural invitation to join in that movement to cultivate positive change for animals, for people, and for planet.
1: I was really, really impressed. First of all, you have it in one of the most beautiful uh, venues. There's in Ottawa, it's a conservatory eco site. But then you also had a fashion show, but a fashion show on sustainable clothing. And then we had our panel, but there were so many young people there. And the other thing was you had music, popcorn. It was fun.
2: (laughs) I'm so glad you enjoyed yourself. You know, as a storyteller and as a former high school teacher, I've always been involved in events and kind of creating experiences that cultivate that type of environment. And I was really proud of the program that we were able to put together. I mean, we had a cocktail hour at the start of it. So as soon as people walked in, they were greeted with, you know, a fun photo booth, which is, you know, everybody wants to be on their social media right now. And there were live rescue animals for the guests to interact with and professionals to provide educational opportunities right at the start. There were vendors showcasing that sustainable fashion. And then that sustainable fashion show, you're right, there were a lot of young people involved. And fashion is just one of those main driving factors in culture and society. And it's also one of the largest polluting industries just behind oil and gas. So in order to kind of bring more than awareness, we need that collective conscious shift and to kind of do it in a different and engaging manner and in a way where it's, you know, done artfully. So just really engaging the crowd and making them curious, making them question where their clothes come from, looking at their tags, just digging a little bit deeper. We're just kind of trying to enhance that critical thinking and that collective conscious shift for action in the fashion community.
0: So I don't think it's a huge secret anymore, but the fashion industry is a major polluter. According to WeForum, it produces 10% of all human-created carbon emissions and is the second largest consumer of the world's water supply. Over the last 20 years, clothing production has doubled with the rise of fast fashion. We're literally buying about 60% more clothing these days. But sadly, we're keeping our garments for half as long, with the majority ending up in landfills. Not to mention, 35% of microplastics found in the ocean come from textiles made from materials like polyester. While fast fashion is more affordable, it comes with major social and environmental costs.
2: It was really fun to kind of collaborate with all the different... I mean, it was a huge team. We had... (laughs) I don't know if you were able to see it. I know you came in the the back room there to get your makeup done before the panel. But we had a, a team of 40 putting this together. And what was really exciting for me was to see that it was all volunteer-based. So everybody that participated was, they just wanted to be part of that movement. So that was really exciting for me to kind of see that this collective shift that I'm talking about, that more conscious lifestyle approach, it's becoming more mainstream and it's less on the fringes so you know we used cruelty-free cosmetics and eco makeup artists and educators and so there was a lot of there was a lot going on in the program and i was really really proud of it and was so happy to have you involved with it as well you offered so much talking talking towards the biodiversity agenda.
1: Well, I think, I think we both have biodiversity in our hearts. This is a totally different approach than the traditional doom and gloom of the environmental movement, right? And, and I like this uh, emphasis on storytelling. So you've had such a varied career, high school, teacher, and then on your website, you talk about building a photography business and changing the world. Where does this passion for wanting to change the world come from?
2: Ooh, I'm like wondering just how much time you actually have, Anne. Um, (laughs) I think this passion has been just, it's just part of who I am as a person and part of my, my makeup. The way that I grew up was kind of informed by my wonderful parents. My mom was very active in community building initiatives and my dad, we were kind of I just felt like I was always playing outside, always in the outdoors, and just always had this kind of natural connection to to the outdoors and and to animals. And you know, witnessed my mom always building relationships with people and with brands and and doing all of this. So it just felt like it was part of my makeup. But really, I, I was just kind of going through the normal. Path, like most people do, you know, uh, check, 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 go through school, get the house, get the dogs, do all of the things. And I was teaching and I felt like I was really making an effective impact in the classroom. But there are some things in the system that I felt very confining, to be honest. So I just needed to try and leverage the skills that I had, which, you know, they don't always fit inside of a box. But I knew that my drive to really create positive change in the world would just lead me to to the right place. And my camera, the storytelling aspect of that, using my camera as a tool to kind of contextualize my world around me and my experiences, it's really given me the platform to to do just that, to really affect change in a different way, a little bit more of a broader audience than just, you know, the 30 students that were in my classroom, who I miss dearly, and I do miss engaging with the young people that way, but switching into professional photography has really provided access and networking and a whole other avenue to try and create that same impact and create that positive change in the world, just just done in a little bit of a different way.
1: Where do you get your energy from building a photography (laughs) business and then all of this volunteer work and activism?
2: Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, it's a lot of coffee. There's a lot of caffeine involved. This is really, truly what fulfills me. So all all of my free time is really taken up by this work, and it's because that's where I value, you know, putting my energy. I do make sure that I take enough time to rest and recharge. That's a big part of it. And I think just in my background as an athlete, I kind of have that self-development and and just making sure that uh, my health and wellness are priority first, because if we don't have that, we're just not able to extend ourselves in service to others any further. So, I make time for that and just, you know, good rest and recharge and get outdoors, breathe some fresh air and surround myself with with people that are looking to do a lot of the
1: same. You've got on your website, there's pictures of elephants. And I remember that there was a speaker on the panel that I participated in the night for conservation about elephants. Are there particular animals that you have a passion or that you relate to?
2: Mm, that's a great question. You know, I really believe in the intrinsic value of all Of all animals of all species but my (laughs) I would say the ones that I am immediately closest to are my two rescue huskies absolutely those guys are my best buddies but I've had some very special experiences with certain animals so the elephants was definitely one of them Um, humpback whales have been another and while I've never seen nor been around a rhino. I have now been working closely with the Helping Rhinos organization as part of a Night for Conservation and just uh, with rhinos being a keystone species, you know, an umbrella species really, I've just been very interested in doing some more work with them.
0: So what are keystone species? They're plants, animals, fungi, or even bacteria that have a disproportionately large impact on their ecosystem. They play an important role in their natural environments because their impact on other species can reshape entire ecosystems. And without their presence, many ecosystems would look incredibly different. They could face collapse, or may not even exist. The name was coined in 1966 by American ecologist Robert T. Payne, who used the term keystone species to describe the relationship between sea stars, who were predators, and mussels who were prey. In architecture, the keystone refers to the wedge-shaped stone located at the top of an archway. While its presence within the structure appears relatively minor, if removed, the whole arch would face collapse since it locks the structure in place. One of the most well-known keystone species are the grey wolves in Yellowstone National Park visit our episode notes to watch a wonderful documentary about how they transformed the ecosystem.
2: I have interests in different areas with different animals, but I've also had different types of experiences, which have kind of informed the direction that I'd like to take my work. So that would be the elephants... The humpbacks and the rhinos.
1: Talking about um, your huskies. So I've had dogs ever since I was six years old, and I just recently lost one of my beloved companions.
2: I'm so sorry to hear that.
1: Yeah, and but I was heartbroken, and I, I, th- I and I've, I've now had to euthanize six, six beloved companions. They're, they're guard dogs. They're big dogs. They die early. And I started to think, in my family, we have very different kinds of connections. My sister and I are deeply, deeply connected to other beings, in particular to dogs, Mm -hmm. whereas my brother isn't. So then I started to think, why do some people have these deep, deep connections, almost from being little, as you say, being outside and loving to be outside, and others don't? So then how can we... Foster, enhance, facilitate, sorry for being wordy, these connections with people who don't have them.
2: Yeah, and that is kind of, you know, I think my research into that really stems in my educational background when I was looking at how we could... Really motivate the unmotivated, and in, in those terms, I was talking about students. But we can really apply that type of principle, that type of thinking, to to everyone. We we do it in marketing. We do we do it in all sorts of different ways. You know, I'm a big pusher for experiential learning opportunities. So, for example, when I was just referring to the experience, my experiences with humpback whales a few years ago, I had gone out there to swim and photograph with them, and you know, you're jumping in the water with them, and and you're living in their world. So you're experiencing things kind of, you get a different sense of the world through their eyes. But I also was witness to things that I'd seen on TV or I'd seen on social media, but I'd never experienced in person. So, for example, entanglements. So I was out, you know, 100 miles off the coast of the Dominican Republic in the middle of the Silver Bank and was seeing plastic bags floating in the ocean and. Pieces of fishing nets from Canadian fisheries. So that type of experience really does something. Whether you, you know, have those, have that connection with animals from the start or not, when you have those types of experiences and you live them, you're, you're coming at it from a totally different place. I think. So that's why a night for conservation, we had that unique program to try and tap into different people's interests and. I think as well just in the world of conservation if we're talking about how to try and create those connection points we need to create we people just don't take in information unless it's relatable and valuable for their for their life so we need to be a little bit less prescriptive in the way that we deliver information so we need to talk to people. We need to have a deeper connection with people, not at them. So there are all different ways to do that. And I have been constantly exploring different avenues. And so far, the experiential learning one has been really great. I've also been looking at creating other, I've been using creativity really as a tool to to explore as well. So creating a digital series to try and connect people to nature. It's, you know, it doesn't have to be so, it's not an exclusive Exclusive club, You know, it is accessible for everybody. It's just providing an avenue there. I think that if we can have a little bit more of a communication stance that provides that deeper connection where, like I said, we're talking to people, not at them, a little bit less prescriptive and providing experiences or access to experiences, I think that really helps to make a difference.
1: I think that's really wise advice and and, and so one of the things I've learned as an academic experimenting with social media is to speak more personally and yet we're so trained never to be personal, never to be emotional even though I don't believe in objectivity, objective truth, it's a nice goal and therefore one strives towards it, always remembering how very, very subjective you are. I think academics have a big job to do in changing the way we tell people instead of sharing with people.
2: Absolutely. And I think, yes, I can, I definitely would agree with you there. I think that view um, in academia of, you know, the old grand lecture where you're standing at the top of the class bestowing knowledge you know, towards all the students. I think we've kind of transitioned out of that model to a more, you're now a guide um, instead of that, you know, that big lecturer. You're more of a guide in their learning. We have so much, students have so much access to information at their fingertips. They can Google a lot of what, <laughs> what we can teach them. It's providing that connection and a safe learning environment and cultivating, fostering that environment, fostering those skills that they've naturally had, bringing that out in them. That's what we need to be Focusing on now. So, really having a more socio cultural
1: approach to academia would be definitely beneficial, in my opinion. Besides your tremendous energy, um, I hear such hope. And quite often when I'm teaching, I can, I can tell in a classroom who comes from the glass half empty, which <laughs> yeah. so colors or makes the world gray. And those that see the glass as half full. Any strategies for, for empowering the half empty? Like you've got 40 volunteers curating that magical, social, cultural, educational, environmental event.
2: Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I think something that I've learned and I'm still learning is actually a colleague of mine really gave me this advice. Was, it's to be a radical listener. So we all have a voice, we all have something to share, and when people want to contribute, it's great to lend an ear to what what skills they can bring to the table. I know whenever I'm working on a project, whether it's an event or a shoot or whatever that may be, I'm always looking to cultivate whatever those natural skills are that those unique people bring Those unique gifts that those people can bring to the world. That's what I want to see. That's when they're going to be at their best. So I think listening (laughs) is a really big part of that. Providing opportunity, providing access, limiting barriers is something that I often feel is overlooked. I think there's a lot of people that want to take part and want to be the glass you know, half full kind of people. I don't think there's anybody that shows up at school and and thinks, I want to do really poorly today, right? So it's really tapping into what, what makes those people curious. And once we can do that, that's when we can maybe create some sort of direction for them. So I think that's really where we can you know, find some motivation when we're when we're not feeling motivated and we can kind of help empower others that way.
1: So radical listening and tapping into rather than telling or mm-hmm. demonstrating.
0: Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Two excellent strategies. And I'll have to remember that when I'm talking <laughs> to my students. Tapping into. <laughs> The other thing that I've learned and, you know, a part of what we're doing in our national biodiversity campaign and our biodiversity action agenda with 24 recommendations seems simple probably to people who are activists is, Mm -hmm. I I learned this at a workshop. So we've got a blog and I know that you're going to be producing a blog shortly. Mm -hmm. We have such a cadre of, of volunteers producing such wonderful and sharing such wonderful knowledge. But at the end of the blog, I was informed by an activist, you academics never ask us to do anything. So at the end of each blog, we have three actions that we're asking people to do for biodiversity conservation in their backyard, their neighborhood, or for their province and country.
2: Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And I am happy to do that. I will be a uh... Definitely sharing as much as I can, and I'm still actually formulating what I'm going to be writing for the blog. I think I'm going to be talking to what it takes. You know what? What is a modern day conservationist? How do we define that today? I think that's what I'm going to be talking to. So there will definitely be some takeaways for everyone uh, listening.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm. We'll be excited to get it, Brittany. And and I'm. <laughs> I'm sorry to impose on your invaluable time. Um, no. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to your photography. So, so in my research, what we've tried to integrate in the last decade is art and beauty. And so, one of my ideas is that through beauty, maybe we can save ourselves and save the world. It reminds me that a picture is worth a thousand words. Absolutely. So, I think of the of the little boy washed up. I, I'm forgetting his name. Um, one of the in Syria. Yes. Yeah. Yes
0: is referring to a heartbreaking photograph of Alan Kurdi. He was a three-year-old Syrian boy who sadly drowned in 2015, along with his mother and brother. The family were crossing the Mediterranean Sea from Turkey to Greece in hopes of eventually joining family in Vancouver. This photo made global headlines because it illuminated the Syrian refugee crisis, which kick-started a global response.
1: And then the iconic picture, which had some, some critique around it of the starving polar bear. Mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't those pictures without hope and solutions without being pollyannish i'm not sure like you can you can get people wanting to act but if they don't know how to act or see themselves in those actions
2: yeah and I think what I've been noticing a lot over the last couple of years, and this is maybe just coming from the educator's eye, but a lot of the premier photographers I would say in our world are showcasing that beauty, that hope, those those connections, sometimes the harsh realities of the world that we live in, which we actually need to know about in order to, to take action. But what they're doing is they're actually providing actionable steps. And a lot of them are building community outside of what they're doing just in photography. So actually, if you if you talk about Paul Nicklin, Christina Mittenmeyer, they've got a project called Sea Legacy. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that's really something that uh, I would suggest for anybody listening to check out and explore. There's a lot of people providing actionable steps through art. And I've, I've also seen it referred to as artivism, so combining art and activism in
1: doing so. It's really interesting. There are so many people working so hard, and yet now I'm going to be sort of half empty here. The political agenda is just starting to change, and uh, unfortunately or fortunately, COVID-19 has given the world a pause. We have an opportunity now. Any ideas, and this is a tough, probably last question, how do we connect the dots between all of the wonderful people and how can we support Greta Thunberg? How can we just work a little smarter? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think it's important to note
2: For sure that we are experiencing a huge shift right now um, as far as the political agenda goes. And I'm glad to hear that you framed it in terms of it being an opportunity. Um, I love I love the, you know, the optimism in that because I, I believe the same thing. I think with everyone having so much time to be introspective, they've had a lot more time to actually recognize the relationship that they have with themselves with each other and even with the world around them. So having a deeper look and being that much more introspective on the individual level is shifting things. Now, we're also seeing environmental justice being related to racial justice. And I hope that everybody out there listening really does see that These types of things are intersecting. It is all tied together. So emphasizing the intersectionality of it, I think, is really, really crucial for us to understand all the connections between our health and the social, political agendas, our our economy, and and the environmental inequalities that we're all facing.
0: Have you ever heard of intersectional environmentalism? This term was recently popularized by Leah Thomas, who is an activist and eco-communicator. She describes this term as an inclusive version of environmentalism that advocates for both the protection of people and the planet. It identifies the way in which injustices happening to marginalized communities and the earth are interconnected. It brings injustices done to the most vulnerable communities and the earth to the forefront and does not minimize or silence social inequality. Intersectional environmentalism advocates for justice for people and the planet.
1: Yeah, I think it's really ironic um, that intersectionality is, is something we're all realizing. Have, have you thought about the lowest paid workers, that is, the service workers, the delivery people, the mailmen, the cashiers in the grocery stores? I think we've learned that they are essential to keeping our economy and our society functioning, and I'm hoping that I see increasing calls for a guaranteed annual income. I'm hoping that, you know, the government will consider a national pension scheme for service workers. It not it ironic, you know, the highest paid workers weren't the ones that kept us going? Oh, absolutely! And I had a
2: really interesting conversation about a whole, a whole part of that with uh, another panelist from the same event with you, uh, Barbara Cartwright, who's the CEO from Humane Canada, and she was talking about how many of those people that are in those industries are being sent out by nonprofits, you know, to to charge right out onto the front lines and. The charitable sector does not have a voice currently in Parliament, so it's a huge industry, it employs, I think it's the second biggest employer, industry-wise.
0: So I had no idea the charitable sector made up such a large part of the workforce in Canada. So naturally, I had to do my research. Now, I couldn't confirm the exact standing of the charitable sector in Canada, but I did find some interesting information. According to Canada Helps, charities in our country employ 10% of the full-time workforce in Canada and contribute 8% to Canada's GDP. That's an estimated $151 billion. There are 86,000 registered charities across the country, most of which have an annual budget under $500,000 and employ less than 10 people.
2: So the fact that we don't have a voice representing that entire industry, which most of it is made up of women, by the way. So that's also interesting. Caregivers, right? So that is something I think to take note of through all of this is that we do need to establish a voice to represent the charitable industry in in Canada. I think that's very important as we've seen
1: throughout this crisis. Yeah, I didn't know that, Brittany. Thanks so Mm -hmm. much. That's why I hang around with people like you, you see. I (laughs) learn so much. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad. That gets me back to the role of language, you know, and I, instead of having pets, I have animal companions. And it's the same as not-for-profit organizations. By the not, we're defining them as lesser. So I think somebody once suggested that we should change the language to social enterprises.
2: Yes. Now I do believe that there is profit associated with that right now, though it's like a purpose for profit type model. If I'm, if I'm not,
1: oh, I don't know. If, maybe yes.
2: So I believe that's yeah. the social, and that that's just for my own research. So you, I do your research out there if you're listening. But I believe you know a social enterprise is purpose for profit, so you're not. Whereas a not-for-profit, you're still, you know, for lack of better words, here we are talking about language, and I'm going to say, dance to the tune of the donors, (laughs) you know? So a social enterprise, you can actually create your own products, and hopefully people see value in them and support your business model and your mission in that manner. Right. So I would, I would love to see the language change as well for, for the nonprofit world. I'm not sure what the solution to that is. So if we have any word buffs out there, maybe they can... Send some suggestions in.
1: (laughs) Yeah, please let us know. It it takes uh, it takes many to create a community, and that's right. Yeah, and then uh, I love your emphasis on storytelling. I mean, we all have our story, Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that. So, I I talked earlier about connection, and I'd like to close with the idea of compassion. How do we engender greater compassion for the others in people? Oh,
2: that's a great question. That's a deep question too, and I think I think again it's relating back to a lot of what I've said. I think it's providing opportunity to empower others to be their true selves. And that sounds a little woo-woo <laughs> maybe, but the reality is when we are at our when our potential has been optimized, we can be we can be that much better in servitude to to others and have that compassion and that empathetic lens so putting yourself out there trying new things getting out of your comfort zone traveling is a big way to do that in my own experience so just getting getting yourself outside your comfort zone and trying to see through the eyes of somebody else be put yourself in somebody else's shoes foster actively, like you have to actively foster that practice of empathy, I think, in order to, to cultivate compassion, just like anything else we want to build. It's like a muscle that we need
1: to work out. So that, that's where my two cents are for that. You remind me of what Greta Thunberg said about hope when asked, how do you get hope? She said, you get hope by doing. And mm-hmm. Brittany, you are certainly doing a fantastic oh. job connecting people and planet. Thank oh, you. Oh, I so
2: appreciate that. Thanks to you and right back at you. Okay. Ta.
0: Thanks for listening to What the F*** is Biodiversity. Today's episode was produced by Lot2 Media and the National Environmental Treasure and was edited by B. Jill Cran. The music was also composed by B. Jill Cran. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe. And if you want to learn more about our NGO, which we call NET for short, visit our website at OurSafetyNet.org. Also, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to help us spread the word about biodiversity, you can find us on Canada Helps.